Not so many years ago, I was working at a software company. I was working with Walter Henniger, who's the eldest son of Henry and Jane, that some of you may know. And my car, which had formerly been Kathy's car, a 1988 Honda Prelude that I had to put myself in with a sort of can opener approach, shoehorn. It had its battery go bad. Well, as I had done many times before with other faulty batteries, we took to hooking up jumper cables so that we could jump off this battery so the car could regain its mobility. On that particular day, and unlike any of the days in my past, we had a bit of astonishment in Brentwood, Tennessee, because that sucker exploded in my face so that it looked like this. Just kidding. It was quite frightening. I rushed to the bathroom to throw water on my face. My eyes were stinging. My face was stinging. Fortunately, it wasn't all that bad. It may account for some of the ways that I look now. But I never really thought about it for after that day. I put the water on my face and went on about my business. But I'd taken off the seersucker shirt that I was wearing, cotton as it was, and placed it in the laundry bin. I doubt that. Okay, I left it in the floor somewhere. <laughs> and a few days later, when it was time to wash this shirt, an interesting thing happened. The shirt had a million little holes all in it, as if it had been eaten by piranha. If you ever saw the toy with Richard Pryor running through, that's too old. Okay. (laughs) All these little holes. This corrosive agent, this sulfuric acid that no one had seen. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't known it was on the shirt. He couldn't see it on the shirt. It had begun to corrode the fabric of the garment so that it was not any longer a useful shirt. It couldn't be what it was supposed to be because of the corrosive agent that was silently destroying it. I think about that when I think about what Jesus is telling these people who have apprenticed themselves to him like you have, who are in his audience as he begins to open his mouth and breathe the words of God onto them and show them a picture of what their life is to be now that they have been invaded by the kingdom of the heavens. Now that the life of heaven has taken up residence in them, he's giving them insight into what they're supposed to be like, what they're for. And he says with these common metaphors that we've heard so many times before, your salt and your light. And of course, behind all that is this recognition that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Duh. But it's corroding. It's always on the verge of spoiling. It's it's being vandalized, and there's all kinds of not just urban decay, there's moral decay and social decay and emotional decay. Putrefication is always on the verge of setting in And very often, nobody has any idea about it. 
It's like that sulfuric acid left on clothing. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm concerned that the world be what I want it to be, and I need to neutralize the corrosive elements so that holes aren't eaten into the mosaic of wonder that I've created this world to be. And so he gives us these images, and I'm going to start with one of my own that gets at the heart, I think, of what he's talking about when he talks about being salt, and what he talks about when he talks about being light. But I'm going to put it in our common parlance, because you are people that watch television, and you're not unfamiliar with odors, I imagine. Especially if you live with men. Okay. There's a commercial, and you may have seen it. Where well, they take a mom, a mom, a helpless mom, and her chariot, her minivan, and they they do this elaborate setup. They blindfold her, but before they do that and place her in the minivan, you know what they do? They take a week's worth of dirty socks and spoiled gym clothes and moldy days-old pizza and all sorts of things you might find in the trash can, all sorts of things that you've declared war against in your home for a hygiene, and they have placed it in this chariot of mom. And then they spray Febreze. And they put the blindfold on, and they have her sit there just, just a few inches away from old pizza, coffee grounds, and dirty underwear and they say what do you smell it smells like a clean house just inches away from old yogurt cups it smells like my new car it smells like like the beach the beach and then voila they take off the Blindfold. And there she sits in a formerly smelly trash heap of a car. But the odor has been neutralized because the Febreze has clung to the molecules of stink and freshened the air. And I think... If Jesus were talking to us today, he might use something very much like that to say, you know what? Church, people who have come into contact with Jesus, the world in very many ways, in ways it doesn't even understand, has malodorous B.O. The, the world is rotting. The world is a trash heap in so many ways. And you're there to freshen the air, to neutralize the stink, to make it not only tolerable, but a delight. That's part of why you're there, to neutralize the corrosive elements. You're there to adhere to the molecules of stink, to make it go away. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The first picture is that, salt. He didn't have 
deep freezes, freezers in your garage in first century Palestine. There was no Maytag or Whirlpool. Salt was used. It was necessary, one of the most necessary things in life to keep things from rotting, to keep meat tasty, to neutralize the bacteria that would make you sick. And so this first picture is Jesus saying, as people who belong to me, my church, you have a vocation to stop the rot of this world. That's part of what being salt is. You have a vocation to stop the rot of this world. Now, what might that mean? He doesn't really tell you all the things it means. He urges us, I think, to start to imagine this as our vocation. To start to envision what it might be like. And I'm going to imagine with you for a moment. Thinking of other things that Jesus has said. And maybe in ways that you haven't thought of before. But one of the ways that you would practice saltiness to stem the tide of the world spoiling is you'd have to be a people who give a darn. You'd have to be a people who give a darn. Do you know anything, anything good on planet Earth right now that doesn't have people in it who stick? Who doesn't have people in it who just care about what happens Think about your own family. The family you grew up in, if it was a relatively good one, the family that you're presently conducting. Let me talk to parents for a minute. Do you have any idea how to fix the maladies in your family? How to change the relational dynamics that go on? How to fix the problems that your adolescent daughter is having with bullies at school? How to correct self-image problems? How to swiftly and infallibly correct behavioral issues, emotional issues. Do you know how to fix all that stuff in your house? Well, do you? I'm assuming, because I've watched your lives and listened to you talk, and I've heard some of you even spill your secrets, a lot of people don't know what to do. But you know what I've also noticed? Of all you people who don't know what to do, most of you don't just run away. Because for all the trouble that you know in your house, you love those critters. And for all the difficulty of it, you actually love your husband. You're committed. You give a darn about what happens to these kids. So even if you don't know what to do, you're just going to keep expending yourself for them. You're going to keep getting taken advantage of. You're going to keep trying things. You're going to pray like mad because you care what happens to them. Because you care. It's one of the things that makes going to a fast food restaurant so unpleasant. It's because so often the people there act like you're annoying them. They don't care. They make $7 an hour. They don't care. The owner cares, but he's not there. When institutions are inhabited by people who don't care what happens, good things don't happen. They rot. But think of this. Today, think of this. You have been placed in hospitals, in banks, in schools, in family systems as a grandmother or as a grandfather. 
You've been placed in companies where you sell things, where you arrange things, where you manage people because Jesus cares about those and He has given you to that organization, to that neighborhood, to that group of people to give a darn about them so that things don't rot, so that things don't get worse. Wendell Berry has said in one place, the real work of planet saving. I think this is a really helpful thing to think about because we are surrounded We're surrounded by all kinds of things that seem like they're in turmoil and they're in dismay and right side up is getting turned upside down. There are vast social problems. There's great immorality. There's impending financial crisis. They're going to take away your guns. The world might end tomorrow. The world needs help. And he says the real work of planet saving will be small, humble, and humbling. And insofar as it involves love, pleasing and rewarding. Its jobs will be too many to count, too many to report, too many to be publicly noticed or rewarded, and too small to make anybody rich or famous. And the great obstacle... And see, this is what Jesus is concerned about. You know, he tells them, you're the salt of the earth. And instead of spilling out what that means, in some ways, I think he assumes that's obvious what that means. He says, the danger is that you're going to lose your saltiness. The danger is that you won't do it. The danger is that you'll be deluded in your effectiveness and you won't fulfill your vocation. And so Barry says, here's the great obstacle. Here's the great obstacle for us in love, caring about what happens to the children around us, to the poor people around us, to the orphans around us, to the businesses around us, to the people around us, the great obstacle may not be greed, but the modern hankering after glamour. A lot of our smartest, most concerned people want to come up with a big solution to a big problem. I don't think that planet saving, if we take it seriously, can furnish employment to many such people. Covenant College students, you want to take the world by storm? Take the world for Christ? Get a job and be somebody who cares about what happens there. Give yourself fully to it. Moms and dad love your children, and bear with them and with each other. Do small, humble, humbling tasks where God has placed you for the sake of the world that he loves. He says, when I think of the kind of worker that the job requires, I think of Dorothy Day, who some of you may have heard of, the Catholic worker movement worked with the homeless, a person willing to go down and down into the daunting humbling, almost hopeless local presence of the problem to face the great problem one small life at a time. Boy, if you started to realize and fully appropriate that God has placed you in your job, in your family, in the places where you work and go to school and where you play, he's placed you there to give a hoot about it. To let love direct you to care. And even though you may not know how to solve its problems, love will bid you to hang in there with them. To not let them go unnoticed. 
And it'll change the way you think about your work. You know what's lovely to me? There are people in this congregation who do things. There are people in this congregation who do jobs. And they could be making lots more money at other jobs. But you know why they do it? Because they care. They care about what they do. They believe in what they're doing. They believe that it's an investment that makes sense. And so there are other values higher than just making a lot of money. Because they care. If you're going to stop the rot, you've got to to care. You've got to stick. You've got to see things through. You've got to keep your promises. You've got to live differently. He says, stop the rot. That's what saltiness is about. And then he says this, help relieve the darkness. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses, I'm I'm sorry, you are the light of the world. Sorry. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. One of the advantages you have if you live out here on the south part of Lookout Mountain that people in Chattanooga don't have, city slickers don't get this. You have experienced darkness. You can see stars. You know, people in Chattanooga, you can't see the stars. In cities, when there's lights all around, you can't see the stars. When we come home at night, it's dark. You sometimes can't see your hand in front of your face. If you were in first century Palestine and you're out in the Middle East, and you were not near a city, when it got dark, you could not say to Siri, open flashlight app. You were stuck in blanketed darkness that was disorienting. But if there was a city, even a hundred miles away, where there was light in that city, it would relieve the darkness of where you were. That's why we put little nightlights in the rooms of children so that just a tiny little light can relieve the oppression of the darkness that they fear. And Jesus is saying, this is another part of your calling. I've placed you out into the world where people are wandering around in the dark. They redefine sin. They call things that are evil, good. They call things that are good, evil. And then they applaud They applaud the people that call evil things good. They've lost their minds. They're about to walk off a cliff. They don't have any idea. They don't know what humans are supposed to be like. They don't know what love is. They don't know what marriage is supposed to be. They don't know the right way to conduct their sexual ethics. They don't know how to handle their money. They are in rebellion to God. They're walking around in darkness. And here's my answer. Boom, you guys. You're revelatory. People ought to be able to look at you and say, Oh my goodness, that's how you be a human? Oh my goodness, look at the way these people love. They take, they take foster children into their house. They want babies that nobody else wants. They're willing to give up their money. They're willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. What? They don't just act on their animal instincts. They submit themselves and their sexual ethics to God's teaching, limiting their activity within marriage. You are 
the light of the world, he says. It's supposed to show people things. People ought to be able to look at your life and then look over your shoulder and say, oh, now I know something more about God who is light. One author has said, in the midst of all the vitriol, and I don't know any other way to describe it, and all the anger and all the confusion and all the finger-pointing about marriage right now, gay marriage and the Defense of Marriage Act, one author has said this, marriage does not need to be defended. It needs only to be practiced. You might disagree with that. I think that's a pretty good statement. And when I listen to Jesus saying to the church, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, what I don't ever hear him doing is standing with a wagon finger at wicked people and screaming at them for their wickedness. What else would wicked people do but pervert God's word? What else would people who are blind to God's intentions do but be people who act in blindness to God's intentions? Please don't sit around and listen to people yell and point fingers at some other group of people. That is not helping you. I promise you it's not. It does not help you to have a steady diet of listening to someone be angry at someone else. If you, and some of you are doing it. Don't. But Jesus does this kind of thing. You. He talks to the church. He talks to the people who are Jesus' disciples. In this sense, it's a, in a very real way, G.K. Chesterton was right. When the London Times once said, what's wrong with the world? They had a, a write-in editorial project. What is wrong with the world? Let us hear your opinions. And Chesterton is alleged to have written in a two-word response. I am. Sincerely, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I am. And of course, he's talking about the very Christian way of us saying, we're going to get the plank out of our own eye before we try to get specks out of others. But in another sense, he's even more right than that. Because when we look around at the culture not being the way we want it to be or think that God wants it to be, oftentimes do we not, should we not look at ourselves and say, maybe we haven't been light. Maybe we haven't shown what it is to follow Jesus. Maybe we haven't been willing to make sacrifices. Maybe we look just like them. Maybe we're at fault for the decay of America. Nah, probably not. But Jesus talks to us. And so we need to talk to us. And if you start to believe that you are light, if you start to believe that you're someone who's representing another, it'll change the way you go about your work each day. It'll change the way you think about mothering. It'll change the way you think about being a student and the way you think about your job. Think if you started to realize, like, I'm supposed to be representing another. I'm supposed to be a depiction of of what God thinks is right and good about living as a human on this planet. One application would be, you think about people, there are all kinds of them all around us, there might be in your family, who are lonely. 
One guy I admire said, you know, it's often hard for people to believe that God loves them if not one person who bears the name Christian will even visit them. We bear the name of Christ. We're light. But it's awfully hard for people to think that God loves them if there aren't any people that like them. We're embodying Him. We're carriers of Him. People ought to look at our Attention to the forgotten, to the forsaken, to the unwanted, to the difficult. Don't you know people that you just as soon leave alone? They suck life out of you. You don't want to be around them. But sometimes you'll give up your time because God loves them and wants to love them through you. What if you started each day saying, Lord, as I begin this day, work in me that I might have a preservative influence everywhere I am. Work through me that I might preserve, that I might flavor, that I might gladden all those around me, that I might reveal your kind of life because we don't do this on our own steam. We believe that we are inhabited by another. The apostle says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You have a power source. The Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who is brokering a life out of you. Count on Him. Draw near to Him. And ask Him to produce a breath of fresh air. Where you go, where you work, where you play, so that you can stop the rot and relieve the darkness. I close with this. This story I know I've shared before. I doubt you remember. I'm banking on you not remembering. But I think it gets at something that's so important when you hear Jesus say you're salt and light. Because it can be a crushing thing. It can seem like, wow, what a burden. And I'd like you to think for just a minute as we close about what's behind it. As I introduce you to Uncle Peach. Uncle Peach is a man that when he worked, which was far from all the time, he worked at a leisurely pace and money, once he got paid, he ran off. He had never been married for the reason, according to him, that he could never accomplish a short courtship. And no woman who ever came to know him well enough to make up her mind about him would ever make it up in his favor. And so Uncle Peach, who was, by the way, a drunk, was dependent on his sister Dory. And he was always departing from Dory, his sister, in a spat of high resolve. He'd be nursed by her. He'd be loved by her. He'd be put back on his feet and dried out. And he'd go off a new man to seek his fortune. And he always would return failed, drunk, sick, and broke. To be nursed to sobriety and health again. And the, editor, the, the narrator makes this comment about Dory, this sister. Uncle Peach was her trial because she let him be. Because she loved him and would not give him up. Quietly, almost submissively, she propped herself against him. Because in her fate and in her faith, she was opposed to his ruin. 
I can't think of a better description of Christ's affection and loyalty and intentions for this planet that he made and will not give up on. He lets the earth be his trial. He's let us be his trial. He loves us and will not give up on us. He is opposed to our ruin. And do you know why he says you're the salt and you're the light? Because he's opposed to the ruin of this world that he loves. One author has said, we live in the time of God's patience. And you get that from Peter, who says, God is not slow in keeping his promises, patient, not wanting any to perish. God is unbelievably patient. He's unbelievably patient with you because he's opposed to the world's ruin. And as he calls you to be salt and he calls you to be light, remember everything that's behind that is Jesus saying to you, I cannot bear to see people that I made get flushed down the toilet. I cannot bear to see my image be destroyed by its rebellion. I am opposed to the ruin of people that I adore. And he says to us, Will you join me in sacrificing to be opposed to that ruin? You're going to have to get close to him to do it. You're going to have to get resources from him to do it. You're going to have to be willing to risk. You're going to have to be willing to incur cost. You're going to have to let other people become your trial because you love them and won't give them up. You have to be opposed to the ruin of all good things around you because your Savior was. Amen.